Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here today with Lane Kawaoka. Lane, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Aloha, everybody. Yes, absolutely. Aloha. You said he is in Honolulu, Hawaii. I was just in Hanalei Bay, Kauai last week. So different islands, but uh, you know, same state. I was out there living the good life, and uh, you know, Lane is three hours uh, behind me, I guess, uh, earlier than me. Uh, I'm in California today, so nice afternoon there in Hawaii for you. So first, you know, I, I would love to dive in and just learn how you got into the real estate industry. We'll talk a lot about what you're doing today with simple passive cash flow and you know the things that you have going on today. But before that, you know, kind of what was your first exposure to the real estate industry? Yeah, so I, I kind of grew up on this linear path to go to school, study hard, be frugal with my money, invest in a 401k and stuff like that. Went to school, became an engineer. And up until this point, you know, I call it the linear path, right? A lot of people are kind of, they just do what our parents tell us you know, go and study hard. And I became an engineer. I started working and again, follow this dogma of buying a house to live in, right? Because that's what everybody says you're supposed to do. And since I was working, um, my job at the time had a lot of travel and I was like never home. So I was kind of thinking that was kind of silly to have this big house to myself. So at that point, I just started to rent it out, got a property manager to manage my tenants for me. And then, then I realized like, whoa, this stuff is pretty powerful. Right? Like the, the tenants paying down my mortgage and there's some extra after the mortgage to buy whatever I wanted with it. Uh, that was back in 2009. And that was kind of the start of all this, you know, passive cash flow hunting. Hmm. Yeah, I know that's a great story. And now fast forward to today, you know, what does simplepassivecashflow.com offer to the world? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of years went by, you know, in 2015, I had 11 of those rental properties and then I started to go buy a larger apartment deals and then um, started the podcast about it. And people kind of wanted to jump on the bandwagon and invest alongside of us. So today we um, own and operate 1.2 billion in assets under um, ownership, 7,700 units, and you know, well over 50, I think 55 apartments total. 
And we also have the coaching and consulting side, which is kind of more of an inner circle mastermind group is how we, we run it. But um, just a lot of like-minded investors, you know, who don't invest off of really sexy things, but this idea of investing off of workforce-style housing, well, apartments between $700 to $1,400 that there's there's huge demand for in this country with costs going up and the lower middle class being left behind. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And at an investor conference that I was at in January, the affordable housing niche was a big topic because, I mean, we're so underbuilt as a nation and that whole affordable housing sector, I mean, that that level of like a median rents, kind of like class B, but well-maintained apartment, it, those are very safe assets to be investing in. Uh, the, the the class A's uh, a lot of times in in looking back to previous recessions, you know when someone moves out of a house because they're foreclosed on or something like that, they're not typically then going to go move into a class A apartment in a downtown area with all the amenities, right? They would move into more of like a class B apartment and the class B's a lot of times are the ones that stay fully occupied even during downturns. So um, very interesting asset class to me. I'm a multifamily investments broker in California. So <laughs> this is uh, definitely my yeah. house and, <laughs> and uh, love multifamily as an asset class. So I'm curious, you know, what's the single most important action you take on a daily basis that you attribute most to your success? Um, you know, I think for me, I mean, I have a lot of team members now that kind of take care of all the, the nitty gritty stuff today, but I think it's, you know, just figuring out what are like the couple things that are the most important, you know, after you take care of yourself, you eat well, you get a good night's sleep, you go to the gym, but, you know, I try, there are a lot of days where I'm kind of doing all kinds of stuff, putting out fires here, there, or, you know, creating this email communication or this thing that don't really move the needle. But if I kind of focus on one or two things that are really impactful and try and delegate the rest, you know, I consider that a pretty good day. Yeah. Okay. And, and so that, that one thing would be delegation. Is that, is that. that well, I, I think there's one, I mean, I, I unfortunately am still the linchpin in a lot of this, this mm. type of stuff, right? Like, I, and I think a lot of times it's, if I really stop and pause for once, there's always one thing, I mean, it's kind of a Gary Keller idea of the one thing. There's always one thing that I'm kind of holding the ball on where I should just, yeah, I have to do something still because I'm still a cog in the system, but I got to get it going so my guys can kind of run with it and kind of, you know, work on it the next week or two. Um, there's always something that, you know, I have to identify what are those things and get myself out of it or do whatever I need to do, just get it done, whether it takes five minutes, whether it takes an hour get it done so I can move it on down the line. Yeah. No, I, uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the sooner you can get to the point where you're not a bottleneck at all is, is a, a good day and a yeah. dream for most startup entrepreneurs. Yeah. But um, yeah, I just don't think that that's really practical advice, right? Like I just got my, my guys do everything, you know, just, they just somehow read my mind. You know, I think most people listen to podcasts are either starting out where you don't have anybody and then, I mean, we're all there at one time and then it's all hands on deck and you're working eight to 12 hours plus a day or you're kind of somewhere in the in between and right? you're starting to delegate it out, you're still, but you're still cognizant and you're still very necessary for a total load. Right, right. Yeah, the, the thought that you would get to the point where you have this well-oiled machine and then you hire a CEO to replace you and you're like some silent board member, it's, you know, it's this 
fantasy, I guess, of business owners. But in reality, you're always, like you said, that cog in the wheel until you essentially successfully exit at the company and leave it. Right. Uh, so, right. so I, I agree with that sentiment that, you know, trying to strive for that dream of like having not being, not needing to touch any aspect of the business is a little bit of an unrealistic expectation. And, um, you know, some of the best founders that I know are, they'll still roll up their sleeves and go like, you know, optimize a Facebook ad that's not doing well for a client or whatever it is, whatever that like hands-on thing is that isn't the most glamorous that they've already hired out for. You know, if it's, uh, either a new product launch or if it's a high value client or, or they're still meeting face to face, you know, with, with certain high value clients when the customer service management team should be doing that, you know, and, and some of the best founders I know are still knee deep in the business at times, right. They, they have to then go break out and do strategy and do higher level thinking with their leadership team, but they're not afraid to go do that. And so uh, I think it's a good concept to keep in mind that you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, something that came to mind was, you know, if there's one thing that's the most important thing that I think is, I still have this problem myself is, you know, you're having the fire fight all the day and you, you got these important high impact things you need to do, but you should always be trying to find those SOPs, trying to create those things so you can just totally delegate the item. Uh, mm-hmm. Something we're working on recently, you know, we got to get the tax forms out, the K1 forms for investors and, you know, we have the SOP written, right? You send this to the, you know, you package it up, you send it to the investor, you put this form letter with the subject line. But, you know, there are also, then you kind of get more into like, you know, the, the assistants, the staff, sometimes there's smaller questions that come up that still have to go back and forth with some of the manager staff. Um, it's always constantly refining those SOPs. And I remember when I first started to bring on staff, there was like a whole month where I made it a goal, like every day, make one freaking SOP per day. Because <laughs> it was the hardest for me to actually break out of my routine and doing things, but not working on business. Right. Yep. It's a very difficult thing to do to start working on the business while you're still working in the business. Yeah. It's, it's very, very difficult to do. So uh, I, I like that. <laughs> every day for a month, one SOP a day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've tried to do it for a couple of years prior to that. And then you know, it's hard because you end up never doing it. But then right. I think the thing for me that finally tipped me over back then was like, I, I was in this other mastermind group and there was a guy who was a, I think it was a chiropractor and his personality was a little bit less hands-on, um, very strange for an entrepreneur. But he said, you know, I just, everything I did, I just wrote it down and created an SOP. And then I was just really detail oriented. I recorded videos on home or I uploaded internally at YouTube. And after a while, there weren't many things for me to SOP out. And that's where he freed himself. Hmm. So I knew it could be done. Yeah, you, you saw the possibility and in in saw the light yeah. there, which was inspiring. So where do you think the industry is heading? I'm curious, your projections, you know, you're managing a large portfolio, um, you're have this mastermind group with a lot of top investors that are a part of it and sharing their insights They're, you know, going to that investor conference in January. I noticed that everyone's talking about certain hot buzzwords or topics for this year's volatility, you know, going out to maybe like five or 10 years out, what are your projections for the real estate industry? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're trying to sell conference tickets or like YouTube video views, you're always trying to make like, there's something just beyond the corner, right? you're always trying to sell attention. 
but you know, like you find people that's been in this business longer than a few years, seen some micro ups and downs. I mean, that's kind of where I'm at. You know, I, I've been investing since 2009 and I thought things were really expensive 2012, then 14, then 15, then 16, then 18, then 2020. And you start to realize, well, it depends what kind of a business you're in, right? Like we, we only invest in things that cash flow for the start, right? We're not in distressed assets. So if in that case, you know, it's always a good time to be buying. Right, as long mm-hmm. as you run their numbers and you cash out on a monthly basis, it's the house flippers, the people buying for appreciation, are going to get hurt. And you know, like in, in our world, like you know, people always say, "Well, interest rates are going to go up." Yeah, I'm sure interest rates are going to be going up, but you know, the cap rates will always be a little bit better than interest rates. That's inherently how the world works, right? Banks will lend it out at this based on where the assets are creating money. And then there's always a gap between interest rates and cap rates. And of course, you apply leverage in real estate right, to magnify that. And that's where your returns come from. And it's always going to be there, just like how gravity is always there. There's always going to be a yield. And at the end of the day, if you just buy good assets, and decent, better than average locations, and you're buying it for cash flow, you should be fine. Hmm. Very yeah. boring yeah. outlook on it, right? <laughs> like boring Simple. is good. Yeah. Yeah. Boring is sexy when it comes to investing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, you I... look at all the wealthy people out there. I mean, discount all the new rich, right? That come from all these tech stuff. The, the wealthy people with multi-generational wealth are all investing in very boring industries, very commodity-ish type of needs. And real estate is one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I mean, real estate, when it and that's so broad as well. I mean, residential is one thing, but then you have the whole commercial landscape, agriculture, you know, retail, like that. I mean, there's so many little sectors of the commercial side where generational wealth has been passed down. So yeah, I, I do agree with you there 100%. So we're talking about uh, looking at deals. I'm curious, what's your process for evaluating what to say no to? Because you're probably at this point now where a lot of deals are coming across your desk and, and you also have capital from your mastermind from investors to invest in. So now it's a choice of what deal to, to work with. You mentioned cash flowing day one, um, but I'm curious, you know, what's your process for evaluating what to say no to? Yeah, I mean, our deals come through brokers, right? Because we're buying assets that are stabilized and are pieces of junk. So the brokers in the commercial world, as you know, control the deals, right? You guys are actually the ones working your ass off as opposed to your residential property counterparts. They're just taking selfies and branding themselves as a personal person. You guys are calling up the sellers, getting them to sell and passing it off to people like us. So for us, the big thing is to get in good graces with the broker community so we can get the top uh, picks. And, you know, oftentimes we may not come in with the highest price, but because we have the best reputation to close and we're easy to work with, you know, that's why we kind of win a deal. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, it's, a, it's actually more common of a response uh, than you might think that, that I've heard. Like, we have a good reputation for closing. And so we will win the deal, even though we're not the highest. Yeah. Uh, and, so- and at this point, our brokers kind of know, I mean, our, Brokers know how to underwrite deals themselves. They may not do it the way we do, but they don't bring us junk anymore. I mean, in the first couple of years, you know, they send us all kinds of garbage. Right? I mean, sure, you do it all the time, right? Like you got some new guy you've never met before. You don't have a relationship. You're just kind of sending them 
junk to see what he bites on, right? The deals that nobody wants. But at this point, we've kind of built up that relationship with our brokers that we don't, we're not even going to look at them. We're not going to like, and a lot of times now they want, it's kind of the, the tables have turned since we have a lot of assets that we have potentially to sell. You know, they don't want to dick around with us and not, you know, just send us garbage over on the buy side. But, mm-hmm. you know, basically we're, we're numbers driven. So, you know, we, we're going to get the, the T12, the trailing financials, verify that with the rent rolls, and we're going to throw it into the an- analyzer and the spreadsheet and kind of model out the deal based on certain assumptions. You know, that's basically how we do things. It's, you know, I think that's the nice thing with the commercial world is a lot of it is numbers driven. Totally is. Yep. Yeah, it all comes down to the numbers. And it's funny because, as you mentioned, the residential counterpart, you know, the selfies in front of the houses, and it's so much more emotional and feeling. And, uh, you know, got my license, went on the commercial side. After doing marketing primarily on the residential side for five years, uh, and it was just having conversations with property owners and, you know, finding out if they have any types of problems that are happening at that time that are motivating them to sell and then looking at spreadsheets and numbers. And that's, that's it. I mean, right, right. It, so yeah, definitely a stark contrast between the two. I'm curious, you know, in the last five years, what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life? You know, so, something that came to mind recently is, you know, just getting comfortable with the fact of, know, hiring people out and paying up, you know, more than I got paid as a working professional. I mean, I quit my day engineering job back in 2018 after a dozen years of working. And that was a big thing, you know, to kind of leave that easy money behind for this entrepreneurial world. But then, you know, recently it's been, you know, hiring multiple people, you know, it's kind of the same thing, but in a different way, you know, it's like I gave up my salary for the unknown, but now I have to take on X amount of people's salaries. So it's kind of the same uncertain step, but that was the way I framed it in my head. And I knew there was kind of the path to go and kind of build the team that way. So that, that's kind of been a belief change I've had. Cause in the beginning, you're kind of like, well, you know, I'm not super sure about this business. I don't know if it'll work. I certainly don't want to lose my, uh, my potential as a W2 wage earner. You know, I don't want mm-hmm. to just burn that bridge, but at some point you have to. And it's, I think it's different with everybody. You know, I think a lot of more visual people who are out there in social media talking to this kind of stuff will say, well, they're going to burn the boats, even though they don't have a freaking business. I think I'm on the more side, like once your business gets some traction, whether that's, you know, a hundred grand, $500,000 of sales or revenue per year, you know, I think that's the point where it starts to make sense to leave your day job or or hire more staff. Right. Yeah. And to your point, that's what I did. I transitioned out my W-2 by exceeding my monthly income from my business before leaving. So that, that was my transition moment. And, uh, you know, it happened actually in 2018 as well. But um, I, I hear it as well, the burn the boats mentality. It sounds great on paper. And one of the formative books that I read during that time that kind of persuaded me to keep that day job a little longer was the 1% entrepreneur. And the concept was, you know, you hear 
these love stories about people that maxed out their credit cards, mortgaged their house, and then exited a billion dollar tech startup. And, you know, now they've lived happily ever after, but you also don't hear about the people that maxed out their credit cards, leveraged their house, and then failed. Right. right. You, you, you <laughs> only hear about the success of people, the survivors, survivorship bias. Yeah, right? exactly. So, <laughs> so, you know, why wreck your finances with some pipe dream that, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm a dreamer and I'm an innovator. So like, go for it. I, I want to inspire you to go do that thing, but you also could have the stability of the thing that you have worked hard to establish and create this, you know, salaried income or this stable income, whatever it is for you. Um, and then let the other things surpass it before leaving. So I think that's a good concept and real estate, you know, could be one of those things, you know, you don't have to leave your day job in order to then go to real estate full-time for a year with no commission check yet. <laughs> like You can start building it on the side. Um, right. Yeah. And, and that's probably, why like the, the brand of like real estate, we kind of show people is like the passive side, right? Like this isn't mm-hmm. a tricky job. If you're spending one or four hours a month doing this stuff, you're doing it wrong. Stick to your day job guys, you know, or, or, or your side gig entrepreneur venture, mm-hmm. um, you know, give it some time. And then, uh, you know, I think the, couple of things why you want to do that you want to build lean systems right if you're just flooded with time because you don't have a day job you're not going to be you know you're not going to create those sops to do things very efficiently and the nice thing about having a day job too is that you have that money that capital will buy things that help speed you along the process yeah. if you're running a cash strap business you just don't have that capital to spend right exactly no that's that's a really good point so how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have a favorite failure of yours? Um, I mean, we don't take too many chances, right? I mean, we're always buying stuff that kind of cash flow. So you know, even if there's a huge top of the market, you know, we'll be okay. Um, but I would say that the times where I've kind of, you know, stumbled, messed up, or you lost money is, you know, when you're just working with the wrong people. Which is hard, especially in the beginning, because you don't have a network to figure out who's legit business because everybody's a master marketer, right? Everybody's taking selfies over behind or in front of something. Everyone's an expert. Not. Yeah, right. It's really hard to determine who's legit out there unless you have a, a group of people around you that know and has maybe, in, the, in my case, invested with somebody in the past and can kind of sign off on that gold level referral. The trouble is when you're starting out, you don't have that community and you just don't have the expertise and you're likely, you know, dumpster diving in like the lower rungs of operators and, and people. So it's going to be harder. And, you know, I, I think you just have to kind of stay the course and, you know, don't gamble everything on one thing. You diversify what you have and it's just time to tell who kind of still around and who performs, who's a shyster, who's just a fake it till you make it person yeah no that's really good advice so other than just sticking it out what other advice would you give to someone who wants to expand the real estate network with really quality individuals well i think if you're the thing is if you're not an accredited investor you're not a great investor meaning like your network is under a million especially under half a million let's be honest, you don't really add value to other peer accredited investors go out and get some money, right? That's what I did from 2009 to 2015. I just kept to myself and bought rental properties as they saved it for my day job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, other accredited investors that you want as peers, 
they're just not really going to really want to interact with you. Like they value your, their time. And so that's kind of, it's, that's a hard thing. And I think, you know, money's not everything, but it gets you into certain doors. And as much as you want to kind of pay to get, I mean, that was a big key growth of my growth was after a certain point, I started to pay for different masterminds, get into different clubs and groups that certainly get away from like the local real estate club and like the meetup crowd, right? The free stuff. Cause what you'll find a lot of those kind of places, you'll find like the house flipper or the wholesaler guys with no money, right? They're trying to hear real estate's a nice way to get rich quick. Um, but really, you know, like the, the accredited investors were the ones that kind of, were, a lot of them were silently working their day jobs, high paid professionals, saving up, buying rentals, and it just kind of grew over time, you know, t- a dozen years or so to get to accredited investor status. And then and then I think you, it's key to kind of seek out those types of people. The problem is you don't know what's on somebody's personal financial sheet, and it's hard to really verify. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, the more that you pay to get into different groups and circles, at least you're kind of decreasing your chance of just finding those fake it to make it kind of guys. Yep, I agree. I mean, there's a certain degree of qualification that goes into a room that costs you $25,000 to be in. Yeah. So it's either the guy's an idiot because he spent 25 grand and he should have bought his first rental property. (laughs) And that you can kind of tell after a while, after the guy has a couple of drinks (laughs) or these guys are legit and 25 grand is just a fraction of their marketing budget that year. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I've found that my, most quality connections are from paid conferences, paid uh, masterminds. You know, I've joined some of those 10, 15,000 for 10 weeks or six months or whatever it is. And, you know, that's, that's where the closer circles of the high performing entrepreneurs are. And one of the analogies was that, you know, being a type A, you know, entrepreneur, wolf in, in this world, it's kind of a lonely path. And so, you know, when you're constantly high performing, delegating, leading, doing these activities, it feels really nice to be able to go to a room where everyone understands because they're all doing the same thing in their little sector of the world. And you kind of find this collective of like-minded individuals. And for me, I, I was willing to pay for that, to be a part of that. You know, so I, I don't know if that's a similar experience to what your masterminds kind of creates for, for those investors. But, you know, when they're talking to people on a daily basis that have no idea what real estate investing is all about, you kind of want to have some conversations with people that do. Uh, yeah. and, and, and so it's, it's very attractive to be a part of that collective group. Yeah. I mean, my spouse is like, like seriously, 25 grand to join one of these things and hang out with these guys a few times a year. Right, uh, but then she, I think you know, she and they and I, you know, I always do this at the beginning, but you know, they see the quality of people that kind of are in those, and it's more like shooting fish in a barrel at that point. And you know, people in there are saying like, you know, there's a lot of there's most people on there are on the outside and think twenty five grand that's a lot of money, you know, like well, if twenty five grand is a lot of money to you, and you probably don't belong there, yeah, <laughs> probably not, you don't belong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you do invest the 25 grand, it's then up to you to extract the value, right? It's not then handed to you. You got to actually show up in person and, you know, be yourself, network, go do a deal with someone, 
make 500 grand over the next five years, you know, from that one connection you wouldn't have made. Like that's the whole purpose of it. So yeah, I, I'm a big believer in the whole masterminds game and, uh, you know, glad to hear that you have one that's doing well. And you also have then the, it, it seems like a syndication side. So when you say like invest with us, you're syndicating, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we put, you know, we do five or six offering. So we bring in uh, passive investors and on the mastermind, you know, we don't teach people how to do this type of stuff. There's a lot of people that do. I just don't think that that not many people, the success rate is pretty dang low for people mm-hmm. doing this type of stuff. So my group is more towards, you know, it's more for higher paid professionals, higher net worth investors who just want a network to passively invest. They're not going to go buy their own building. They're not going to be underwriting specialists, but it's kind of a peer group. It's a safe environment for people to kind of huddle around like tax, legal, and investment options um, in a kind of a safe space. But, you know, most masterminds, they're geared towards the raging entrepreneur, right? Where this is your livelihood. Um, my group is, is entirely opposite, right? It's meant to be a passive thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And talking to someone who deals with a lot of investments, uh, what's the best or most worthwhile investment you've ever made? I mean, some of the, the best investments have been kind of scary in the beginning, like, you know, more classy types of deals. The trouble with those is you have a little bit lower end uh, tenant profile. You know, most times our collections and our class B assets, class B plus assets are like in the 95% range, but some of these class C properties, they can drop down into like the 80s. And it's just like, you know, where occupancy is good, but if you don't collect the money from these guys, you got to chase them down like little kids. <laughs> then, I mean, it's all, it all is net operating income at the end of the day. Um, so that said, you know, there's a lot of returns to be made for those people who don't have the faint of heart. Um, and some of these deals we've made big returns on, but, you know, lately I've been kind of thinking it's just not kind of worth the squeeze, right? If you can kind of go into an asset that's a little bit less headache. I mean, that's what you try to, you know, the investors try to do is they try and go after simple passive cash flow and I try to model the way, you know, if if maybe it's not as high returns, but it's a lot easier, a lot simpler, and it's a little bit more passive for all involved that, you know, especially if it performs better at tough times, you know, that's the way I'm going to kind of steer the ship here in the future. I think it's very wise. Like you said, might be some extra returns to be made in more of an active type of management status on a class C, but juice might not be worth the squeeze when you're talking about a simple passive strategy you know, like you said earlier as well, you're coming in after the property has been stabilized. So this whole distressed property, 12 month bridge loan stabilization flip has already occurred. And then you guys are like the buyer at the end of that. That's like, okay, cool. It's, it's cash flowing. All right, let's do it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I mean, there's still a value add strategy in there, but you know, it's not like we're 50, 60% occupied, like how some investors, I mean, it's a legitimate business plan. If that's your strategy, then own it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like, or at least like my personality or team is kind of set up more to, you know, go after the stabilized assets that have still a lot of meat on the bone, but mm-hmm. kind of stick to that. I mean, it's just, it's just a little bit more bulletproof in a recession. Yeah, no, that makes sense because unless you're dealing with a truly world-class operator, I mean, there's almost always meat on the bone to increase efficiency, reduce expenses, increase rents, do minor innovate. Like there's almost always something 
So I, I think that's a, a very wise strategy and it's obviously done well for you. Um, one of the last questions I have is, you know, what bad recommendations do you hear given in the uh, investing industry? I think a lot of people say, well, go to like the local real estate club or the free online forms. You kind of talked about that, right? Like it's just sure. usually you get a bunch of the newbies and cheapskates. Adding on top of that, you know, I think people, they, they read too much. You know, I always recommend like Gary Keller's book, Real Estate Investor, a millionaire real estate investor. I think that's a good primer, but you know, most people, they just listen to hours and hours and hours of podcasts. It's like, geez, just go out and buy a rental property, like do something. And then, you know, focus more on like building the group around you know, people network, right? Get off of your computer, get the earbuds out of your ears and go out and do something or talk to people. Yeah. So such good advice. Yeah. That's that analysis paralysis. Just go get into action. Yeah. So is there a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to expand upon from earlier? No, I mean, I guess, what do you think listeners would like to hear most about at this point? Well, we've covered a lot in regards to simple passive cash flow, the opportunity to join a mastermind of like-minded individuals and kind of find these passive cash flow opportunities in more of a closed room environment for accredited investors. We talked about, you know, your type of strategy where you're coming in on more stabilized assets and still meat on the bone, but you know, they're pretty recession proof in that regard because they're already cash flowing. So if the property value drops, you're going to buy and hold it and cash flow it anyway. It doesn't really matter. I'll just wait for it to come back. Let's go yeah, with this. Like the biggest, go ahead. Okay, here's the most common mistakes I see, right? Number one, investors, they have this idea of paying off their properties. The debt is the one of the most important part is the asset. You want to lock up as much long-term good debt as possible. So, yep. Yeah, that's, that's kind of mistake number one. Mistake number two is like investing in the garbage investments of Wall Street, 401ks, IRAs. They're all the stuff that the Fidelities, the Vanguards, they all want you to invest with it because they're taking a huge amount of hidden fees and, and carried interests. And this is the, the difference between a lot of people off the beaten path in the alternative investment world. They've left all those retail investments behind for better returns, better tax benefits. And uh, yeah, I guess 30, you know, like a lot of real estate investors, I mean, I guess that's the reason why I like real estate is you get so much of these passive losses to play different levers on your taxes. And if you can implement real estate professional status strategy, you know, I mean, not going to get into that today, but you know, that's where mm -hmm. people can drive down their adjusted gross income to basically whatever they want. Right. <laughs> that's one of the biggest benefits of being yeah. active status, real estate professional and investing in you know, multifamily investments, just that, that tax, I wouldn't even call it a loophole, but that tax code, it's amazing. Yeah. That's what they want um, you to do. Right. I, mean, I had a whole podcast about that with this guy. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. But, um, one of the things you mentioned the, the, you know, the first thing, um, gosh, now I lost it. What was, what was the first <laughs> that you mentioned? Um, yeah. Paying off your properties, right? Yes. Like it's a lot uh, of like, okay. A lot of people are very debt averse. Yes. Get it. When I was young, I was probably like 18, uh, in talking to this entrepreneur, um, I invested in this micro budget film, you know, we were talking about assets and debts and all these things. And he was like, Oh, you know, I was like, how could debt be an asset? You know? And, and he's like, Oh yeah. You don't know about debt being an asset. All right, well, let me explain this to you. And the way that he explained it to me in that moment, it was really interesting. I mean, you, you talked about locking up long-term bet for real estate, but this is even a different 
exposure to this concept of debt being an asset. He said, if I showed profits of $500,000 for this particular business in this particular year, I could have that business acquire a donut shop that showed $500,000 of loss, strip it of its debt, sell it back to the owner. And we then had losses that, you know, offset the taxable income on paper. Right. And I was like, Whoa, what? That sounds kind of crazy. Um, and whether that is like a hundred percent legal, this isn't financial or tax advice or any of that, but just that concept of debt, not always being this bad thing, I think is the key to take away from there. And with real estate, the ability for banks to leverage these things over 30 years and provide these incredible rates. I mean, that's the type of debt that you definitely want to be leveraging in order to build that wealth. So I think it's a really important concept. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, similarly, I had another gentleman tell me this a long time ago. I don't remember his name. I forget who it was, but it really resonated with me. And he said, if you look at all what we're taught, right, all with the regular people who you don't want to be like, they all talk in terms of how much debt they have, how much interest rate they're talking about, right? Everybody talks like, oh, I got a two-point, dude, wealthy people don't give a rip about that stuff because it's often not really correlated with the goal of being financially independent, financial freedom, cash flow. What the wealthy care about is really what is your net worth, Right. If taking on more debt to buy more assets, increasing their net worth, well, that's the score of all this. That's what opening that really matters. And cash flow, right? Cash flow is your oxygen. If you run out of oxygen, even though your net worth is skyrocketing, you die. So you need to have a good amount of cash flow. But again, wealthy don't really care about debt and interest rate, but they care about the cash flow and the net worth. So that's it's kind of helped me out a lot. Yeah, I know that's really good advice. And uh, I hope that my listeners caught that that distinction. You know, the, the everyday person's talking about, oh, I got a 2.98% interest rate on a 30-year fixed on my single family home. And it's, the, you know, the only thing that I own, but I'm really proud of that 2.98% interest rate. And the wealthier saying, it's 5% interest and I'm buying everything that I possibly can because inflation's at 7%. We're still at negative 2% real rates. Even if you're paying 8%, much, 10%, yeah. who cares? I'm paying, I'm locking up as much long-term debt as I can, right? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So a different conversation, totally, and, and different philosophy that I've noticed on both sides. Yeah. When I go to an investor conference with real players, that's what they're talking about. And when I'm having everyday dinner conversations with the average Joe, they're talking about, oh gosh, interest rates are so high, terrible time to buy, all this and that. And it's like... To your point, even if that 10%. Whatever. And that's why I pay $25,000 freaking dollars to <laughs> not have dinner with Joe and talk right. about that stuff. <laughs> to go have $60 plate plus dinners at, yeah. you know, and, and have amazing conversations with high quality people. Yeah. So, um, yes, really appreciate having you on. Uh, how can listeners contact you? Um, yeah, they can check out the website, simplepassivecashflow.com. If you're interested in passive investing, you can learn more at the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast, Passive Real Estate Investing, uh, iTunes, Google Play, et cetera. But yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure having you on. Uh, really appreciate it. And, you know, Lane, you have a really cool thing going on out with Simple Passive Cashflow. Um, maybe some time in Hawaii, go out there, go surfing. Do you surf? No, no. Ah, uh, he no. doesn't surf. 
That's okay. Oh. Well, uh, <laughs> maybe I'll catch you at one of these investor dinners one day. Yeah. 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 I appreciate having yeah. you on. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.